will not take place tonight, and uh, we'll pick that up after the first of the year. And those of you who are in the membership class, uh, you'll, you'll get a phone call uh, real soon. First um, uh, Corinthians chapter 7 is where we are in our study of uh, this wonderful book, this challenging book. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and the title of uh, the message today is A Word on Marriage, A Word on Marriage. Uh, I was really wrestling with how to introduce uh, today's message as I read through the text. A few things were coming to mind. I had considered uh, starting off with marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. But my wife said that would, that would be lost on a lot of people if you haven't seen the movie. So I decided not to use that as my introduction, but rather, um, <laughs> this is uh, where my heart is. I don't want to preach this today, to be honest with you, because I have not been marriaging very well. And um, as a pastor, it's, it stinks because... You know, like if, if you're struggling with something or if you're not doing very well at something in the Christian life, uh, in the, the passage has to do with what you're struggling with and not doing very well at. Um, it, this is why I, I do and I don't like preaching verse by verse through text of the Bible because it's like I could see Jesus this week smirking a little bit in heaven. Like, you're going to have to deal with some of these things that you're not dealing with very well. And so, uh, by the way, it, the passage is on marriage this week. And so, um, I'm just going to go sit down. I'm going to let you read this for yourself, pray about it, and just go home. <laughs> marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'd like us to just read, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to read the text in its entirety here. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way through uh, 24, and so I'd like to just get a, get a feel of the whole, whole passage that we're going to look at, and then we'll, we'll go back over it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one of you, uh, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the, wife, the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be clean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek to seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything but uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God." Not only is this a, a challenging passage, uh, is, is convicting and uh, very poignant and practical for married couples, but it's also challenge, challenging just exegetically, just trying to understand the flow of the text. So we're going to try to do both, try to understand what it is Paul is saying and then what it is that God wants to say to us. And he begins um, here in verse 7 by saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Now, if you remember, way back at the introduction of the book, we said that the first part of the book, the first six chapters, are more specifically dealing with issues that Paul had heard about through, uh, he says in chapter 1, Chloe's people, whoever they were, uh, issues that, were, that the Corinthians were struggling with and battles that they were facing. And so as we get here to chapter 7, there's a little bit of a shift. At some point, the Corinthians had written a letter or communicated to Paul that they had some questions. They had some, uh, some concerns, some, some things that they wanted further clarity on. And that's where Paul turns his attention now here in chapter 7. And in the chapters that follow, we're going to see this phrase come up again. Now, about that thing that you brought up in your letter. And so, they, in their letter to Paul, uh, brought up this topic of marriage and singleness. And what he... Um, what we glean here from reading this passage, if we take 1 Corinthians chapter 7 by itself as a standalone statement on marriage, as we read there, you don't necessarily glean like the most positive image of marriage. He keeps gravitating towards singleness, and he's going to do even more so in the, in the rest of the chapter that we'll cover in a couple weeks. And so if, this, if we take this by itself, we could get the idea that Paul's not that keen on marriage. John Calvin, even though I appreciate much of what he has to say, uh, makes a statement uh, that marriage is a necessary remedy to keep us from plunging into unbridled lust. And that reflects a common understanding of what Paul is thought to argue here. Another writer claims that Paul regarded marriage to be an emergency measure, even if sanctioned by God in face of the overwhelming power of the sexual urge in man and as a safeguard against unchastity and the temptations of Satan. We have to remember that Paul is writing to a very specific situation here, and he's answering a very specific question. Paul is not attempting to say all that there is to be said about marriage and about divorce and about singleness. 
but he's dealing with a specific situation. In fact, that's, that's a really important Bible study principle to keep in mind, especially when you're reading the New Testament letters of Paul and John and Peter and whoever wrote Hebrews. Keep in mind that they're always writing in a specific context. They're not just saying things into a vacuum, throwing things out there. Um, when we as parents sit down and give our kids one of our famous um, lectures, we, it often is provoked by something. There is something that uh, they have done or not done, and we're seeing a, a concern or a problem, and so we're going to proceed to give them uh, the, the, the information that we feel like they need to have in that moment. It's not given in a vacuum. It's based upon some very specific concern, and that's what Paul's writing here. Somehow, the Corinthians got the idea that abstinence that, that, uh, that living as a, um, uh, someone who completely abstains from any sexual relationship was the highest good in the Christian life. Whether you are a married person or a single person, you should abstain from all forms of sexual relationships. And, and, and so uh, that's what verse 1 reads. In fact, some of your translations will have his second, his, the second half of the verse marked off in quotation marks because it's believed that Paul is probably quoting them. He's not necessarily making a statement that he agrees with. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman sexual relations with a woman. The, the Greek word there literally means touch. In fact, if you have the King James, you'll see it's translated, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. What their perspective was that um, all uh, marriage was not a good thing. The, the, the Corinthians were beginning to develop this, this perspective. And, and all sexual relationships were bad. They needed to live a life of celibacy. And so they bring this up to Paul. One writer defines the problem this way. He says, on the basis of the slogan that it's good not to have sexual relations, the Corinthians were arguing for abstinence within marriage. And since abstinence might be difficult for some, then divorce was being recommended as a viable alternative. Most certainly so when the marriage, uh, when the marriage partner um, united with, uh, with, um, with, was united with an unbeliever. And so, while he does have a lot of great things and important things to say about singleness, and we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, he wants them to know that being single does not make them more spiritual. Paul highly regards marriage. You can read about it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, and he talks about it being a picture of the, the bride of Christ, the, the church being the bride of Christ, and the, 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 the church is the picture of that marriage relationship. So the first thing is we think about these things this morning that I just want to emphasize throughout this text and as we walk through this is the first thing that Paul, uh, we're going to look at here is that marriage is good. Um, if, if, as I said, if we took this passage by itself, we could get the idea that marriage is not a good thing. It's to be entered into only as a last resort. But that's not the picture that, that God gives us throughout the Bible. God says it, it's good. In fact, in Genesis, you remember way back in Genesis 2.18, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. God recognized that there was a need, an important need within our hearts for companionship. God created us for companionship. It doesn't mean on the flip side, to take it the other extreme, that married people are somehow more fulfilled, that they have something that, that singles do not. Again, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks here. But God designed marriage because it was a good thing. 
Let us not glean from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that God has somehow changed his mind about the marriage relationship. We were created to mirror the triune God in that companionship and in that unity. It's also good because it has been given to us as a picture of the love that Christ has for the church. When God tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, it's, that, that's an unbelievable call to sacrifice, an unbelievable call for husbands to lay down their lives to bring honor and glory to the one who has given his life for us. Marriage is good because of procreation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply. Listen, if, if we believe that all the commands of God are good, if we believe that everything He, he says is, is from His loving heart, then we have to believe that, that having children for married couples is a blessing. In fact, the Bible tells us that children are a gift from the Lord. You may not always believe that. Certainly are days where it doesn't feel like that. But it is true. It is true. Marriage is good not only because of companionship, because it pictures the bond between the church and Christ, but because of the privilege of being able to have children. We've been saying so much about discipleship throughout this year. One of the amazing things about having kids is you've got like ready-made disciples right there in your home, opportunities for you to be able to share Christ, to pour into the hearts of these followers, future followers of Christ, these budding followers of Christ. Another reason that marriage is good is because of sexual intimacy. He talks about that a little bit here in this text. Proverbs 5.18 says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. There is a reason that so much of our culture, and even the Corinthian culture in many ways, if we go back and talk about their their city and their dynamics that are going on. There's, there's, there's a reason why sex has been made a god in our culture, why there is so much of a pursuit of sexual pleasure, whether it's through pornography, whether it's through marital unfaithfulness and sex outside of marriage in some other way. There's a reason it captures the headlines. There's lots of reasons, but one of them is because it was created by God to be a good thing. It's a gift from God. It's not an accident that it's pleasurable. God in His loving grace and kindness gave men and women that sexual intimacy to be enjoyed within the bounds of marriage. Marriage is good not only for those reasons, but also because marriage brings about holiness in our life in ways that maybe we wouldn't otherwise know. Gary Thomas in one of his books, has the, the subheading uh, that reads, What if marriage wasn't given to make us happy, but to make us holy? <laughs> if we're looking for marriage to fulfill, to, to be a place of God, like, like Marcus talked about last week, to, to fill a hole that only God can fill, we're going to be sorely disappointed. One of the great blessings, even though, we, again, we don't always see it that way in the moment, is that God uses marriage to sharpen us. Living with someone else day in and day out who is a sinner just like you and me gives us the opportunity to learn patience, for example, in ways that we would not otherwise understand patience. 
It learns, it teaches us about sacrificial love in ways that we may not otherwise know. Marriage has been given to us by God to help us become more like Jesus. We know this, right? That God is not interested in leaving us alone. He is not interested in leaving you and I in areas of immaturity or, or, in, or in sin. He wants to root those things out to help us become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the ways he does that is through the marriage relationship. The second thing I want us to see this morning from this text is that sex is not a weapon. Sex is not a weapon. Let's just read the passage. I'm going to try to let it just speak for itself. (laughs) He says in verse 2, Do you not know that saints... I'm sorry, I'm reading chapter Uh, 6. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he's saying this abstinence thing you guys are talking about uh, for married people, it's ridiculous. Don't, Don't tell them that they can't enjoy something that God has given them to enjoy. And so he says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is reminding them that each belong to the other. Notice he's not being a misogynist here with the culture of the day, which he, he, he very well would have fit into the culture by saying, listen, women, you need to let your husbands do whatever they want with no questions asked. He's not saying that. He says, each of you belong to the other. Each of your bodies belong to the other spouse, which creates a a very difficult paradox, right? Like, who who gets to decide when? Who gets to decide frequency and all that? Paul says, listen, you belong to him. You belong to her. There's a passage in... in, um, Romans 12.10 that can give us an idea of what uh, he's trying to communicate here. In in Romans 12.10, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. See, the question is, is if, if, uh, as John Piper asks, he says, if if her body is his and his body is hers, and each has the authority over the other's body, then he has the authority to ask her to do something he would find pleasurable, and she has the authority over his body to ask that he increase her pleasure by not asking that she do that. How do we figure that out? Romans 12.10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. Piper goes on to say this. He says, the leadership of the husband is defined by Paul not mainly as demanding his rights, but as laying down his life for the good of his wife. Therefore, the predominant resolution of the sexual paradox is that the husband gently and tenderly takes the lead in seeking to maximize his wife's pleasure, taking her longings deeply into account rather than pressuring her to adapt to his. We take in the whole picture of the New Testament. We understand that God has called husbands to lead sacrificially and love as Christ has loved the church. I believe he's calling men to take the lead in this area by not demanding and pressuring to get our own way. Acts 20.35 reminds us it's more blessed to give than receive. There is a holy and humble self-sacrificing competition to make each other maximally glad. The logical stalemate is broken by the miracle of grace. 
each seeking the other above themselves. That perspective, you know, solves a lot of problems in the Christian life. Within marriage, with one another here in the workplace, putting others above ourselves, not demanding what I want in the moment, what, what is best for me. There's, there's little better marriage advice that we can take in than what Philippians chapter 2 tells us, that each person seek the other's good above all. Both the husband and wife are to recognize that the other has a greater claim on their body than they do themselves. We have to take verse 5 very seriously in the marriage relationship. Listen to this. This is a command. Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. You understand what he's saying, right? That marital intimacy is given to us by God and each spouse is not to use it as a weapon by depriving each other, getting back at the other for something they did or didn't do. He says, listen, he says, the only reason you should be abstaining from the sexual relationship in marriage is so that you can devote yourself to some time of prayer and fasting. But he says, don't make it too long or the enemy will find a way into your marriage relationship. I don't, I don't feel the need to spell it out much further But if you're hearing this passage say that depriving your spouse of sexual intimacy is sin, you are hearing correctly. Do that with it as God's Spirit leads you. Sex is not a weapon. Be sure to honor the marriage bed. The third thing that Paul is saying in this text, and and if, I mean, we could make a whole, you know, couple of messages on this section and bouncing around to other passages of Scripture, especially Jesus' teaching. The third thing we want to see is that don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. Once again, the Apostle Paul is not covering all that the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage. We must remember that as we read this text. The biblical principle holds true that God hates divorce. Jesus said that. Clearly throughout the scriptures, God honors marriage as a covenant, and we need to see it as God sees it. Do not divorce. Now again, Paul here is not speaking pastorally in this passage to someone whose marriage is on the rocks, to someone who is in a uh, a physically abusive relationship. Paul is not dealing with the biblical reasons that divorce may be permissible. He is speaking to people who are getting, this, this, getting in this place where like, man, God loves singleness so much so that I can be fully devoted to Him. I, can, I don't have any, any other people to think about in my life. I can just completely think about honoring Him. Like That was the Corinthian mindset, that there was this ultra-holiness associated with singleness and celibacy. Remember that. There were Christians there who were saying, well, if that's the case, then maybe I just need to get divorced. 
and, and they were beginning to consider walking away from their marriages, especially if their spouse wasn't a believer. They had, maybe they got married as unbelievers, one of them gets saved. Many of you are in that same boat this morning. And this person shows no interest in coming to Christ, and you're like, man, they're just dragging me down. I'm going to get divorced so I can get, get the shackles cast off here, and I can just focus on Jesus. And Paul says in this passage here, not to get divorced, to not pursue that. He says, to the married, I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband, and vice versa, that the husband, verse 11, should not divorce his wife. Now, there's a, there's a tricky verse, verse 12, where he says, to the rest I say, and I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Now, what is that phrase? It's probably in your Bible set off by parentheses. To the rest I say, well, I, not the Lord. Does that mean this isn't inspired by God, that this is Paul's little footnote, like, hey, I'm stepping away from the verbal inspiration of the Spirit of God here, what I'm saying, and I'm just giving my opinion, and then we're going to go back to inspired Scripture. No, I don't believe he's saying that. I believe this is a verse that's inspired by God, just like the rest of the Bible. What, I, what he's saying is that Jesus did not speak specifically to this. I'm saying this now, I, not the Lord. J Jesus didn't talk about this issue because he was speaking to Jewish people when he spoke about marriage. He wasn't speaking in a, in a Greek context where they were having one believer, one unbeliever, and Paul's like, I'm going to say something now that Jesus didn't touch on because it wasn't an issue in his context. But it's obviously an issue here. And what he's saying is, is that if you're in a marriage relationship where you're a believer and your spouse is not a believer, he says, stick it out. If they're willing to stay, stick it out. Stay there. Endure. It's difficult. I and mean, I've talked to some of you. And many of you have been praying for your unsaved spouse for decades. And the loneliness that you feel not being able to share your heart about your love for Jesus Christ, the most important person in your life, the one whom you've built everything around, not being able to share that in a marriage relationship, that is agonizing. I've heard many of you share through tears the difficulty of day in and day out trying to maybe share something without being naggy and badgering, getting ready Sunday mornings to go worship on your own, made even more difficult if you're getting guilt trips for it. Paul understands, Jesus understands your suffering. He understands your heartache. And He loves you. And He's there in the midst of your suffering to draw you close, to be that, that intimate, loving companion that you may not have living under your roof. But His call to you is to stick it out. Why does He say that? He says, verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they 
are holy. And then verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That phrase, made holy, it doesn't mean that by somehow being attached to a believer, this unbeliever um, automatically gets into heaven. That's not what he's saying. Remember, we define holiness as being set apart. And there is a special set-apartedness that an unbeliever who is married to a believer has because they are around the sphere. I mean, think about it. If you're this person and you're spending time each day in God's Word, you're being changed by God, especially if you were married to this person when you were an unsaved person, they begin to see the transformation that takes place in your heart and life. There is a, a, a special place that, that that person has just a little bit near, a little bit closer to salvation. Like it's right there. And we long for and we pray for them to have their eyes open that they may see the preciousness of being united with Christ. If your unbelieving spouse is willing to stick around, and I believe this passage is teaching that you should too. God calls us to stick it out. I realize again, I'm not, as we talk about divorce and remarriage, for many of you it can bring up old, difficult wounds. Maybe you've been through a divorce. And this passage does not beat down those who have walked through that. God does not want you to be beat down. I do not want you to be beaten down. Whether that divorce was a biblical divorce or whether that was a sinful divorce, there is grace just as any other sin in our life and any other hurt and heartbreak and heartache. God wants you to know that there is grace there for that. But for those who are married... I encourage you this morning, by God's grace, stick it out. You don't have to do it alone. Get some help. Talk to other believers. Talk to a Christian counselor. Talk to another couple that that you look up to. For the glory of God, let's honor marriage. Let's be willing to stick it out. And then finally, he says, be content with your calling from God. Be content with your calling from God. I don't know if you noticed as we read the passage in its entirety, that when we got to verse 17, it it felt a little bit like Paul was shifting his thinking a little bit and moving on to an entirely different topic, which he is known to do. He jumps around sometimes. That's why Paul can be a little bit difficult to read. And many commentators believe that this is a rabbit trail, but I do not think it is. I think it bridges very well the topic of marriage in verses 1 through 16 and the topic of singleness that he's going to hit in verses 25 and following. And what he's saying in this paragraph, he's not just he's not choosing to chase a rabbit tail about circumcision and about slavery. Like he's not interested here in changing the subject to circumcision and slavery. He uses a couple of illustrations to make a point. And he says, where were you when God called you? Were you married? Were you unmarried? Were you a slave? Were you free? Were you circumcised? Were you uncircumcised? Wherever you were when God called you, be content 
to live in that. Don't seek something else. God has placed us where we are in life. Trust Him with that. What the Corinthians were starting to buy into is that I could be more godly, I could be more spiritual if this thing changed in my life. That doesn't apply to any of us, right? If only this were different, then I could be happy. If only this person didn't do this to me, then I could live the Christian life. Don't tell me you haven't thought that. (laughs) Whether it's in the topic of marriage, whether it's in the topic of your job, something to do with your children, having them, not having them, having too many of them, wishing you had less of them, more of them, whatever it is. Different friends, lived in a different location, had more money, had a better car, had a bigger house. If only, God, you had given me a better lot in life, then I could really honor you. I think I remember hearing someone say something about this in the book of Genesis. It sounded like this. Did God really say? You know, if God really cared about you, He would not be keeping you from this amazing tree that will give you life and make you like God. You see, Satan's tactics have not changed in however many thousands of years since that happened in the Garden of Eden. He longs for us to come to believe that God is holding out on us, that there is something that we need that we do not have to walk with Jesus, to be happy, to be fulfilled, and it's dangling somewhere just out of reach. Satan longs for you and I to live in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction. And based upon the context here, one of the reasons, one of the ways that he's going to do that is through marriage. If you had a different spouse, imagine how much better life would be, whispers the enemy. Martin Luther once said, next to faith, this is the highest art, to be content in the calling which God has placed you. I have not learned it yet. This passage calls us to a divine contentment to rest in the goodness of God. The good life only comes to us when we stop wanting a better one. May we be content. May we be people who rest with hearts of gratitude in what God has given to us. May we be thankful people. This section closes in verses 23 and 24 by reminding us that you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. 
You see, one of the ways, one of the the key paths to being content, to being reminded that I need to remain in the condition that God has called me, be settled with where God has placed me and who he's placed me with. One of the great reminders is that you and I, we were bought with a price. Chapter 6 finished with these words, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ has bought us and brought us to himself. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, reminds us, he says, that knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were bought. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, which means it's not about a me first anymore. It's not about how can I get what I want? What can I, I have that will really truly make me happy? It's no mistake that Paul finishes this section by reminding us, listen, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about bringing glory to the Lamb whose blood was shed so that you might be brought to the presence of God. See, if it boils, we're going to just boil it right down. Most marriage struggles begin with me demanding what I want and I want it right now. It's selfishness. It's me-centeredness that we all bring to some degree to the marriage relationship. Some of us have a ton of a problem with it, huge problem with it. Others of you are further along in your sanctification and may not struggle with it as much, but it's always going to be there. Looking out for number one. And Paul says, listen, the number one, it's not you. It's Jesus. It's not me. It's Jesus. We belong to him. We've been Brought, bought by him so that we can be brought to him. Like we said early on in the book, Paul keeps bringing it back to the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about what Jesus has done for us and coming back to the idea that the only thing I bring to my salvation is the, the sin that needs to be paid for. Jesus is the one who has done the work upon the cross and through faith in him, I can experience that redemption, that newness, that boughtness. And I belong to Christ. As we conclude here with a word about marriage, let us remember that God has called us to contentedness. God has called us to seek the, the other's good above our own so that we can reflect that understanding that I, I don't belong to myself. I belong to Jesus, the one who has saved me. Let's pray. Father, God, would you bless and strengthen the marriages in our church family, the people watching online, the people that will check in later, reflect on this. God, we know that 2020 has been a difficult year, maybe probably more difficult for most people than an average year. And marital stress, whether it's through because of finances, maybe it was of times of quarantine and getting on each other's throat or just realizing that we're sinners in desperate needs of God's grace and have a long way to go and being a good spouse. God, we, we need your grace. Oh, how we need your grace. May we be a church that, that lifts high the covenant of marriage. God, for marriages that are really struggling today, I ask that you would 
bring that husband and wife together today, even in these moments right now, together in prayer. May they begin to communicate, and if they're at an impasse, may they God, would you just bring along the right people into their lives so that they can, they can invite others to speak into their marriage. God, we want to honor your word by honoring marriage. Help us to be people who put our spouse above ourselves. May we not seek our own good above all else, but put their needs above our own. May we remember that we belong to Jesus. May that inform everything that we do, all of our financial decisions, everything we do at work, our career, where we live, work, and play, who we're going to spend our time with, and our marriage and family relationships. May the overarching theme of it's not about me, I don't belong to myself, but I belong to you, O God. May that govern and direct our steps and our decisions in our way, O God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in all your darkness and troubles, remember what you are and have. You have been loved with an everlasting love. You are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom all sealed and made sure by the blood of an everlasting covenant. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you this week.